Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Asp and Answered. Today, Megan, Katie, and I are joined by the one and only Dr. Tracy Statler, who served as the 33rd president of Asp from 2018 to 2019. Dr. Statler is currently the mental performance coordinator for scouting and rehab with the Philadelphia Phillies. Tracy, thank you. We are so excited, so honored that you were willing to make time for us today, particularly as season is back in and things are things are back up and running. So just to get us started, let's start off with you giving us a 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are now. Don't worry about how you got there. We'll get there in a second, but just a 30-second elevator pitch bio of what you're doing today. Great. Um, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to do this with you. Um, that doesn't count towards my 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> but uh, I just wanted to say that I very much appreciate what you guys are doing with this, and I'm thrilled to be able to be a part of it. So to the question, my 30 seconds, this is who I am, this is where I am. Um, again, tr my name is Tracy Statler. I am the mental performance coordinator for the Philadelphia Phillies with the specific role of working within our rehab and our scouting, amateur scouting departments. Um, so it's basically two full-time jobs jammed into one full, full, full-time job. Um, and essentially my, my job responsibilities are to work with our rehab players at from every affiliate level, from our rookie league all the way up to our major league guys and everything in between. Anyone who gets injured, who wants to do a rehab stint um, anything longer than a week or so uh, with our medical staff, our physical therapists, our athletic trainers, our dietitians, our uh, RDs, our strength and conditioning coaches down at our spring training facility in Clearwater. They come to me and I am the mental performance coordinator who works with them while they're in rehab. So a lot of psychology of injury related things with those guys. The other half of my job um, is with our amateur scouting group. And what I do there is work with our scouts to try to help them identify uh, potential prospects who will be able to be successful in the crazy world of professional baseball, um, trying to figure out like, what are the personality characteristics? What are the capabilities? What are the, the, the mental skills basically that they're going to need to have to be able to not only survive, but also thrive through the player development process and hopefully into our major league organization. It's such an important distinction. And I think about that with injury too. It's one thing to get through an injury. It's another to thrive through injury and same thing with recruiting too. It's one thing to say, I want to go to major league baseball. It's another to actually then go be in yeah. that level of sport. And so I love that even though it means multiple full-time jobs for you, that you are getting integrated in those, in those different spots. Yeah, the thing I, the thing I love about it um, for for both pieces of that role um, is that when we think about being a mental performance coach or a mental performance consultant with professional sport, a lot of people think of what our other mental performance coaches do the the ones that are embedded with the teams that go on the road that travel with them that are sitting in the dugouts that are working in the training rooms um, that are with the players while they are competing doing their job. Um, both of the pieces of my job don't entail that. It's the before and the after or the before and the in-between. Um, so I end up, you know, helping to try to find the guys who can who can thrive in this space. So before they even get to the rest of our crew, let's figure out the guys that are going to really fit, really jibe with our culture, with our standards, with, you know, with our expectations. Um, and they're going to be able to thrive through that system. And then also when they get to injury, a lot of times when someone gets injured, as we all know, 
they tend to be sort of sort of put to the side and sometimes forgotten about. But the way that this organization uh, approaches injury is very different. And to me, it's it's a lot more innovative than what we've seen historically around injury, which is the idea that your your opportunity when you come to our Clearwater facility and work in our rehab space is that you have the chance to not only rehab your injury and get back to where you were, you have the ability to take advantage of the fact that all of the other pieces of your performance expectations are put on pause, which gives you the bandwidth, the mental space, the physical space to be able to grow the things that maybe you didn't have time for um, or didn't have the patience for or didn't have the resources available to do while you were with the team on the road. So our goal, our philosophy is that when you come to rehab, you actually leave rehab, not just having rehabbed your injury, but you leave in a better place mentally, physically, nutritionally, strength-wise, everything better than you were when you got here. Um, and to be able to work in that space with these guys has been really, really rewarding. That's awesome. It's such a collaborative environment, it sounds like. And I really love how you're talking about, because I think if we all understand that injury is an inevitable part of sport, unfortunately. If you play long enough, you're going to miss time. Um, and so treating it as like it's an, an inevitable, but it's also an opportunity now to focus on some of these other aspects. It's wonderful. Yeah, we we really like the way, um, especially in, in this last season, uh, in the year that I've been here, and I'm not saying this is due to me, but in the year that I've been here, um, we've been able to create a culture around rehab um, that makes it a place where it, it, there's a perspective sometimes with rehab that players either go there and get comfortable and never want to leave because it's nice and it's easy and it's friendly. That is not what we have. Um, or they never want to go to rehab. They never want to get injured so that they'll they'll not share potentially problematic things to avoid um, having to go to rehab. So what we've been able to do, thankfully, and, and a lot of this goes to my colleagues at, like you mentioned, Megan, in all of the other areas, um, we've been able to sort of demystify what actually goes on in rehab and infuse into that space um, the understanding that that when you're in rehab, you are there to work. You're going to bust your butt to do incredibly hard things that are going to get you better. Um, but also we're going to have really high expectations of you that are going to match um, exactly what is expected of you when you get back to your affiliate. Mm -hmm. So we're keeping you on track while you are still rehabbing whatever the acute injury is that you're dealing with. So awesome. What a great um like setup and hopefully something that would trickle down even into so at the college level um I think rehab very much like you described it is is almost like what do I have to do to stay out of the training room as opposed to like how can I utilize the training room to keep me from having to be in there long term exactly now that we have a better idea of where you are now we one of the purposes of doing this podcast is really to understand where trailblazers in our field you absolutely would be in that category um how they got to be where they are today um so i was wondering if you could give us a bit of um a, a background on your pathway so tracy statler's journey into sports psych. uh okay um i'll try to keep this brief so I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to have studied with the people that I studied with. So I give a lot of credit to not just the, the faculty that I've worked with, but 
the colleagues, the students mm -hmm. that were part of my cohorts every time I went through, because um, I've learned just a ton from every single one of them too. So started off, um, I went to the University of North Carolina as an undergrad, thinking that I was going to be a sportscaster. Um, but this was back in the mid 80s and no one told me that there weren't female sportscasters. So I went through the journalism, broadcast journalism program, um, and when it came time for internships was basically told that I could do the weather or I could cover like high school sports that I knew nothing about. And I was like, um, excuse my language, but no, um, and was not interested in doing any of that. So I started to look around at what other options were available, still within sort of like the broadcast journalism thing. During that time, I was also taking a, a sports psychology, an undergrad sports psychology class that happened to be with Dr. John Silva. Um, and I'm sitting there in the class and I realized, holy crap, this is not only is this a cool class, but this is a job. This is a profession. This is something that I could do for a career. I'm like, hell yeah, sign me up. So much to my parents' chagrin, I had, I think, two classes left in the journalism major at that point in my junior year. I decided to put a pause on my journalism degree, uh, and I double majored then in psychology and then minored in kinesiology. So I actually graduated with two majors and a minor um, because I got really into uh, applied sports psychology and really learning from and understanding that, that psychological foundation of performance. Um, from there, I, I integrated both with Dr. Silva and in the psychology department with a professor named Richard Koop, who um, anybody who's been around for a while knows Koop. Koop was amazing. Um, he approached performance from the psychological perspective and very early on, again, this is like the 1980s, late 1980s, was talking to me about the integration between psychology from a mental health perspective and performance from a physiological and uh, physical perspective, a kinesiology perspective. So I think mm -hmm. from very early on, I, I recognized the importance and the integration of both of those two things. Uh, when I graduated from Carolina, I decided I wanted to continue doing this and um, basically was stupid lucky enough to have been in a space where I could listen to some of the absolute giants of our field talking about some of these, some of their experiences in sports psychology at a conference in Virginia, um, at the University of Virginia, and met Ken Revisa at that conference, and basically accosted him in a hallway one day and told him in not so many words that I was coming to his program, um, but I just wanted him to know who I was at that point before I applied. Um, very funny story about that. That is not appropriate for this broadcast. <laughs> share that with you at another time um answered after dark yes exactly um but uh essentially decided that i was going to go to fullerton and i was going to study with ken revisa because everything i learned from him everything i i had heard about him said this is exactly the kind of person that i want to emulate i want to learn from this i want to craft this into who i can become from learning from him so i worked with ken uh at fullerton for three years to do my master's degree and from there, continued to want to understand more about the very best and how they did this job. And from going to ASP and, and listening to um, conference sessions and networking with professionals in the hallways afterwards, managed to get in front of Keith Henshin at that point from the University of Utah. 
and got listening to him do a couple of talks and hearing him on the side talk about the work that he was doing with USA Track and Field, with the Utah Jazz. I was like, okay, this is another person that I can absolutely learn from. So made the decision to do my PhD at the University of Utah with him. And he was my mentor for a very long time while I was there uh, to learn how to really master the craft of doing this job. Um, and he was great because he filled gaps that I didn't have as much understanding of from my master's degree at Fullerton. Um, and working collaboratively both with Ken Revisa and Keith Henschen really showed me the benefit of the integration of research and practice. Um, you know, you take one of the best practitioners in the world at this in Ken Revisa, and you look at one of the better researchers in the world in Keith Henschen, and understanding how those two pieces inextricably linked with each other to be able to generate and guide the kind of work that people did was super informative for me. Um, so that's the academic side. And along all of those uh, educational experiences, I was doing internships at the time, um, supervised internships with Ken, uh, transitioned into internships and uh, practicum opportunities at Utah with Keith that ultimately let me really get involved with applied work um, and doing some work with, with high-level athletes, probably long before I was qualified to be working with high-level athletes, quite honestly. Um, but thankfully had good people you know, behind me to support me. So anytime I had questions, which was often, they were able to sort of help me out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with, with the connection to Keith, that's how I got involved with sort of sports psychology leadership. Um, Keith, Keith at the time when I was in his, in his program was on the executive board of ISSP, the International Society for Sports Psychology. And when you're a grad student for any of these people who don't know how to use a cell phone or a computer, you ended up doing a lot of the technical work for them, Keith and, and Ken alike. So I was doing a lot of the ISSP related things to help out Keith at the time, um, which made it sort of natural for me to know the ins and outs of what was going on with the organization. He became the president at some time during that time frame when I was one of his grad students. So when I had graduated and it was time for me to step in and, and give back in a lot of ways to uh, the, the organizations and the, the um, groups that had supported me, I started with ISSP and I ran for and joined their board um, and help guide them as both a, a general member and then as a vice president for a number of years, um, which then allowed me to really be able to consider doing something for ASP at that time. So I had done some volunteer stuff. I had done a whole bunch of um, like committee things, student related things, um, working on subcommittees, all of that. And then I eventually ran for the um, scientific program division head position and got that. Um, which was incredibly eye-opening. So anybody who uh, wants to complain about the conference, come and have a conversation with somebody who's been in that space before, and they will let you know exactly what you have to deal with there. But it was a huge honor and a huge challenge and really eye-opening to be able to do that. And that then transitioned into being able to become president down the road after that. So now I'm retired from all of that, and I get to play with baseball players on a baseball field all day. So it's not too bad. Yeah, I love that. Your your story really resonates for a number of reasons. Um, I also got into sports psych by way of journalism. And so um, 
the interesting kind of like juxtaposition of like being on both sides of that and seeing how they're connected. And then also I'm, I'm hearing you say a lot about like the importance of mentorship. Um, you call it luck. I call it like strategic finding places to go. Um, but how important like mentors have been in your life. And then now knowing the way that you mentor other people, it's, it's such like a wonderful cycle of like be mentored well and then mentor other people well and then grow the fields. Yeah, that, that, that's something that um, was pretty much ingrained through everybody that I worked with, the importance not only of being open to getting and giving feedback, but the importance of giving back, um, of really recognizing that nobody, none of us gets here by ourselves. Um, and if you do, you're not doing it well. So let's make sure that we're connecting with people who can help us all grow our capabilities and be better. Whether you're a first year undergrad student or somebody 35 years, 40 years, 50 years uh, into this career, we, we can all continue to grow and learn from each other. So yeah, let's, let's make sure that we've got those groups around us to help us all get better. Yeah, definitely. Tracy, you almost perfectly moved us into this next question, you know, talking about your path and how you got to ISSP and then asked, from a broader perspective, we'd love to get a snapshot of the field prior to you running for president. And so when you think about the field of sport exercise and performance psychology as a whole, and the organization of ASP as well, prior to you running for president, what stands out to you? What, what are the things that are particularly relevant for you when you think about the field in maybe 2016, 2017, 2018, as you're stepping into that role? Oh, good Lord. 2016, 2017, 2018. We've got to go back. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that I started coming to ASP in probably 1987, 88. Um, I mean, the, the, the evolution of this organization, the evolution of the field over that time has been epic. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, even just the fact that it's sport, exercise and performance psychology now. Yeah. No, that no, that that didn't exist then. Um, it was sports psychology and it was. You know, the, the reality was it was NASPA um, and it was the very early stages of ASP following the break off from NASPA to, to the creation of ASP. Um, so it was very much kinesiology driven. It was very much sports sciences driven. So when I started with this, the psychology was there, obviously, as the foundation is the underpinning because of people like Coleman Griffith. But it wasn't, you know, when you would come to an ASP conference, while there were psychology trained people, it wasn't, it wasn't the way it is now where there's this clear, like I said, like combination of the the two fields working collaboratively, hopefully together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's totally different in that regard. So the, the integration that we see now has been a 40, 50 year evolution that I've been lucky to be able to witness and see where it's come to for that piece. Um, looking at uh, like the field and the way the field has changed, we are far more integrated, understood, um, welcomed now than we ever have been. I'm not saying it's perfect. There's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of confusion. There's still a lot of you know uncertainty around who we are, what we can do, what we can call ourselves, all of those things. We still need to to get those ducks in a row for sure. Um, But it's hugely better than it has been at any stage uh, in in my evolution through this field. 
Um, from an organizational perspective, when I started getting involved with the organization of ASP, um, it was a lot of like, like thinking of my colleagues at the time, like my, my cohorts of people, we would look around a lot of the people that ran ASP were our professors, mm -hmm. were our teachers, were our mentors. Um, so, you know, we, we all kind of got together because we would go to these conferences and we would see what our mentors were doing. We would emulate them. We would follow in their footsteps. We would do these things. But as we all sort of graduated and went off into our workspaces, not everybody went off into academia the way all of our mentors had. So one of the big evolutions I've seen in the field and within ASP specifically is that it is no longer just a, a strictly academic organization. You know, sure. in its founding, everybody who ran it, everybody who was on a board, everybody was was an academic. We were all professors. Um, and that really structured and guided some of who the organization was and how they operated. Mm -hmm. If you look at us now, I mean, just look at the last several presidents. You've got academics for sure, but you've got people who work in professional sport. You've got people who work in the military, people who work in business. Um, we've got the gamut. We've got people who are, are psychologists and psychiatrists. We've got we've got the gamut of of people in our leadership of this organization that are coming into sport and performance and exercise psychology from different places, but are all focused on the same sort of hopefully general construct base for the overall improvement of health and well-being and performance of the people that they're working with. Um, so that that's a huge difference. And the, the way that the organization operates now, the the mission that it has, the vision that it has, um, the the both the inward and the outward facing things are very different. And because mm -hmm. of all of that, the way that the organization is structured and functions is massively different than the way it was when I came on board. Tracy, would you mind speaking just a little bit more when you say the mission evolving, that, that purpose evolving? Can you say a little bit about what you've seen as far as that mission changing over time for the organization? Yeah, I think, um, and this may be considered challenging for some to hear, but I think the early years of the organization, we were very inward facing. Mm -hmm. We were by ourselves for ourselves. Um, we were an organization that I, you know, it, 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 while there was an external purpose, an outward facing purpose for those that were doing applied work with performers, pr predominantly athletes at that point, um, much of the, the, the genesis, the motivation for being a member of ASP had to do with the academic benefit that came from it. Sure. So the ability to be able to present your research, to talk about your research, to publish your research, to get funding for your research. Um, it was all very academically oriented. And while we were academically oriented, sometimes around applied issues, so research on application, um, we weren't really pulling in coaches. You know, we, we weren't we weren't an organization that was welcoming, supportive, helpful for many of the people that we were working for and with. Um, they would go to coaching conferences. They would go to, you know, other organizations that were maybe a little bit better about providing resources for them to make their performances better. Um, so that that's one of the big shifts that I see in, in regard to that one particular piece. 
Another huge shift that I've seen, and this is much more recent, is um, within that academic sort of underpinning, um, whether we want to admit it or not, we, we had a very hegemonic, <laughs> very um, sort of misogynistic, not, mm -hmm. not in a negative way, not in a hurtful way, but we were an organization run by and for academic white people, mm -hmm. for academic white people. <laughs> and we were not very good at honestly recognizing and being intentional about being welcoming of and inclusive of all of the people that we were doing this job for and with. Mm. Um, so, I mean, if you look back, I mean, just to use a very, very microcosmic piece of this, you know, here's Keith Henshin, one of my favorite humans on the planet, one of my biggest mentors and the biggest influences in my career, who is a 60, 70 year old white man who's working predominantly with African-American men in sport. And all of the people like Keith looked like Keith mm -hmm. with very few exceptions. Um, you know, every now and then there was a female in the mix. Every now and then there was somebody of color um, or somebody with a, a you know, a, a different orientation in the mix, but that was not, that was not the norm in any way, shape or form. And whether intentional or not, that then puts out a message as to what this organization is and what we do and how we do it. And I, I think early on, um, we weren't, we didn't know what we didn't know, quite honestly, as an organization. I don't, like I said, I don't think any of this was um, intentional or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, malicious in any way, shape or form. I don't think it was, you know, that conscious, mm -hmm. um, but subconsciously we were very exclusionary. Um, so something that I do think has happened, thankfully, um, and still not great, but we're still getting better, um, is we are much more inclusive, we are much more understanding, we are much more embracing of a much broader understanding of who we are, both as a field, as an organization, and as, um, a, you know, a world that we are then serving to, to recognize that confluence of all of those entities. Yeah, so important. Um, and I think even as we've been doing these interviews, that has come up a bit as well. And so I think it's it's really important and great that you mentioned that just to highlight and say it, say it for everyone. So based on kind of maybe those things, maybe not those things, um, what specifically motivated you to run for president? <laughs> yeah, how to answer that one. Um, Honestly, I, I'm still kind of in denial that I did. Um, <laughs> it, it's the kind of thing that I, I still don't, I still don't feel qualified to have done that, quite honestly. Um, but there, there came a point, I, I can't even identify the time frame. Um, it, it's around whenever the Atlanta uh, conference was, there was a group of my colleagues, sort of my cohort, um, of former graduate students, early career professionals that, you know, we had all gotten together and we were talking about, you know, the, the nature of ASP and the, you know, the nature of the field and where are we going and all of that kind of stuff. And we, we pretty much came to the recognition over drinks one night in a hotel lobby that 
if we weren't happy with the direction of the organization, we had to stop bitching about it mm. and we had to do something about it. Um, that we were all early career professionals and known people might not take us seriously. The quote unquote old guard might not look at us as being appropriate. Um, but we all had something to offer and we all had a vision for what the organization could be. And it was like put up or shut up time. And we all kind of sat there and said, you know what, en enough about the complaining, enough with the, you know, the arguing and the getting frustrated every year. If we want to see a change, sure, let's be the change we want to see, you know, let's do it. Um, so we started talking about, you know, you know, sort of world domination at that point, who's going to go first, how are we going to do <laughs> all that kind of thing. Um, so like, you know, we would talk about, you know, who, who would be the most appropriate of, of our group of the people that, you know, sort of we knew kind of thought the same way that we did that were open-minded enough to not just look at the situation and say, that's wrong, but we're open-minded enough to say, that's wrong, here's how come, and here's how we can maybe start shifting. So who is action oriented? Um, and around that time, if you look at the, like the, the etiology of our president's lineages, um, that's when you started seeing like Jack Watson get nominated and become president. That's when you saw um, John Metzler. That's when you saw Brent Walker. That's when you saw Angus Mugford. Um, that's when I came into play. It, it, that was a large group of our cohort. Um, and honestly, we, we just, we did it because we knew there was something that needed to be done and it wasn't worth complaining about it if we weren't going to take action and actually step to it. Mm. And honestly, it was hard as hell for every single one of us. It's not a fun job. It is a hard job. You know, a three-year commitment out of your life, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what your job is, it is a hard position to be in. Um, you're never going to satisfy everybody. There's always going to be people that think you're a whack job and there's no way you're doing this right. But something had to happen. We we needed to have we needed to have people step into those spaces. So we we honestly just decided, okay, we we need to do it. We need to do this because we can't just keep arguing and complaining and and saying, oh poor us, unless we were willing to do something. So that's honestly how I kind of ended up in that space. And thankfully, I think by the time I became president, I knew enough about how the organization worked because of previous jobs that I had had within the e-board and with ISSP beforehand. So I had a pretty good working understanding of like the political landscape, um, the international landscape of sports psychology and how it fit in within the United States and North America. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a, a better understanding, I think, of how to step into that space because of some of my previous experience. Oh, great. Thank you. I, I think it's so powerful. I, you know, I, I'm just so um, in love with the Teddy Roosevelt quote, as many of us are. Thanks, Brene. And then thanks, um, Tom Brady. But um, I think what I'm hearing you talk about is getting out of the stands and getting down into the field, right? Like, it's one thing to be the critic up in the stands, but it's another to say, if I don't like this, I have a couple of options right now. And one of them is to actually then go try to do something different. I think it says so much about you all in your cohort and your group that you saw an opportunity and it, I mean, it, in the election, you might not have won. And that would have said something about what ASK membership wanted. And that might've been some good feedback for you, but for you all, it's such a vulnerable place to put your name into the ring to go for that. And so it just says so much about you all that you cared enough about the organization to 
stick around, fight it out and really try to do something different. So, well, in, in fairness, um, and they'll probably pelt me with olives when I see them live, but um, we had a backup plan just in case that didn't work. Sure. And that would have been to have started an offshoot, not necessarily an organization, um, but to have done something different, to be able to get what we needed out of a yearly meeting. Um, and I don't think the, the, the beautiful thing about that sort of plan B um, was that it didn't, it eventually evolved into not an either or, but an and. Um, so yes, we were all lucky enough, thankful enough to be able to step in and do some good things, I hope with ASP, but we also at the same time also created, um, you know, some, some brainstorms. We created some sidebar um, regional conferences. We have regular get togethers of some of our group that, you know, doesn't, doesn't get publicized. It doesn't get supported financially. We pay for it. we got to find time in our own schedules, but we'll put ourselves out to do our own professional development because that's what we want. We want to get better. Um, and I think the takeaway for that is, you know, a message to anybody who's listening to this is don't wait for the organization mm. to give you what you need. If you need something and you're not getting it from the organization, number one, try to get the organization to help you figure out how to get it, but also take the, the onus onto yourself and actually create some of those opportunities for yourself. So create a think tank. You know, Ken Revisa was brilliant at this. And again, being his former grad student at that point, I had to man the phones and handle the money and do all of that. But create a, a think tank where you can bring together some of the best people in the world to talk about this thing that you're fascinated by so that you can all learn from each other and grow and get better. Don't wait for an organization to give you the go ahead and the magic blessing to say that, yeah, this is the thing you need to do. Just go do it. Um, Cause that's how we grow. That's how we learn. I, I think back to my point before too, just about, again, this theme of like mentoring and this theme of networking. Um, and creating like good colleagues around you. And if that's not where you're at currently, go find them because they exist. Um, and I think we all tend to be like a very welcoming group of people. Um, because I think that's kind of like all of our experience moving up into the field is that somebody reached out to us. So now we're willing to do, well, I'd like to, I shouldn't say that everyone in our field does that, but you know, enough people do. So again, like going and, and getting what you need and going after that and creating it if it doesn't exist. It's, it's such great advice. When I was a grad coordinator, grad advisor, um, one of the big things that I would tell all of my students in preparation before we would go to an ASP conference or even a regional conference was to take a moment and recognize the power of being able to be in a space with people who are passionate and care about the same things that you do. These are your people. These are the people that are going to, you know, if, if they stick around in this workspace, in this environment, in this field, these are going to be your friends and colleagues for your life. I mean, I look at the friends that I made in the 1980s and 90s at ASK conferences, and they're the people that I have on speed dial right now. You know, these are the same people that when I have an amazing thing I want to share with them, they're the first people I call. When I have an epic screw up, and need to laugh at myself, they're the first people I call. If I need advice on how to handle something, they're my go-to. And these are people that I've known now for 30 plus years, a lot because of ASP conferences. 
because of those abilities to come together with people when you are a student and, and figure out like who gets you, who do you get, who understands you, who's going to challenge you, who's going to call bullshit on you, quite honestly, um, in a way that you can hear it and you can learn from it without taking it personally. Um, who are those people? So, you know, my challenge to everybody, like you said, Megan, is find, if you don't have those people around you right now, make a point to go and find them. Um, it, it can seem uh, scary. It can seem super intimidating, particularly at an apps conference to walk up to somebody whose journal articles you've read or whose textbook you're using in your class. Um, or to, you know, just colleagues who say something really cool and interesting at, you know, at a session and you just say, oh man, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I couldn't verbalize it that way, but I want to talk to you. Go and talk to them. Go and introduce yourself um, and just say, you know, that thing that you said, man, that really spoke to me. That was cool. Because as scary as all of us may sometimes seem, we're really not. <laughs> you know, I, I get accused all the time of being intimidated because I'm a female and I'm tall and I'm confident, but I'm a teddy bear, honestly. I mean, Chelsea can tell you. I'm a teddy bear. Um, I am a total sucker. And I just love talking about the things that I get excited about with anybody who wants to talk about. Um, so yeah, take yourself out of that, that doubting yourself space and just go and talk to people. I mean, I have so many questions, but I feel like I should move on to our next question. Okay. So there's this meeting, you decide, you know what? Okay. We're not going to complain anymore. Well, we can still complain, but we're going to do some action behind the complaining too. We're going to take this, turn Good it into, try to make, try to make some changes. So you decide to, it's eventually your turn to run. What were you hoping to accomplish in your time? I mean, three years flies by. What were you hoping to do in those three years? And now looking back, what would you say are your main accomplishments? Yeah, at the time that I stepped into incoming president, um, I had just come off of four years as the scientific program division head. Yeah. So there was a lot of things around the conference that I, I we definitely made it better while I was in that space, but I wanted, there were still things that we hadn't finished around the conference, around education, around um, opportunities for, uh, for, for people at the conference to be able to present um, and to be able to learn and grow. So there was still stuff I wanted to have happen around that. Around that time too was also when we were as an organization trying to get more traction with um, the NCAA and trying to shift our focus from some of that internal, internally facing directive to more of an externally facing focus, trying to like pay more attention to and be intentional about who are our stockholders, um, who are the people that we are working with and for. Um, and I, I felt like when I was in that earlier position, I, I was able to sort of make some inroads with that around programming at the conference, being able to create sort of like some collaboration between organizations, being able to do some outreach related things. But I felt like that we hadn't, we hadn't tipped the scales on that yet. So I still wanted to, to tackle some of that. So some of that outward facing stuff, some of the the focus of helping our constituents better know who we were, what we could offer, how we operate, those kinds of things. 
I also was piggybacking off of my presidential predecessors um, in some of their work. So if you look at sort of the through line from Jack Watson through John, through Brent, through Angus, to me, through to Natalie, I mean, we, there are definitely some, some carry throughs with regard to that outward facing presentation of who we are as ASP. Um, but in order to have a coherent presentation of who we are as ASP, we needed to get much better at figuring out who we were as ASP. So coming into the presidency, a big part of what I wanted to really jump into was some of the hard conversations around who are we, what do we do, what do we not do, um, where are we effective, where are we ineffective, and, and how do we sort of clean up the, the messaging? Because we can't market something if we can't come up with common language and common identity. Um, so a big part, I think, of sort of where I was coming from was let's clean up our house so that when it's time to take this stuff on the road, um, we have a good, viable, understandable product um, without the infighting and stuff that was going on internally within ourselves. Um, with that came things like CMPC, um, came things like the marketing and branding that we have been, you know, having going on now. That's sort of the through line from before me, through me, and now forward into, you know, some of the presidencies that have come post my, my domain. Um, but I think those are some of the bigger components. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, and I think that if, if you go back and, you know, I think about like what my presidential address was, I talked about big rocks. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of big rocks. We had gotten really hyper-focused on a lot of the pebbles um, and we were flinging pebbles at each other internally, quite honestly. Um, it was not pretty. And we, we had bigger, we had bigger rocks that we had to deal with at that point. So my goal was to kind of, you know, just kind of clean up, you know, it, it comes back to, I think my journalism background partnered with my like low level OCD. I, I was just overly frustrated all the time that we just couldn't get our act together. So, okay, let's clean this up. Let's get some clarity here. Let's get some structure here. Let's like, take a look at what our strategic plan is and actually, I don't know, maybe stick with the purpose of our strategic plan and put this stuff into some sort of scaffold, into some framework, into some structure that gives us, you know, a target for what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm all about structure. Um, I'm all about having like some guidelines and a purpose in front of me. So kind of taking things you know, on the wing really, really always frustrated me. And I, and, you know, coming into that space, I, I desperately needed this organization to have more definitive and clear structure on what we were doing and why we were doing it. Um, so that, I think that was probably one of the biggest things that under underlined everything I was trying to do in that space. Well, and it just makes sense from a foundational level. I mean, you mentioned your broadcasting background, but if, if you think about any theory or any skill that we teach, let's first figure out what it is. And then we can get, if I'm trying to communicate before I know what my message is, it's going to be real hard to get other people to buy into it. So I love that idea. Let's get on the same page. Let's have a consistent message so that when different people are going out, we're not confusing people even more than they already are. Right. Yeah. Love it. 
Yeah, and, and with this, I, I want to be really clear that none of what I'm talking about was me. You know, all of what I'm talking about was us. Mm. I, I didn't do any of this. Um, I didn't have any of these sort of grand visions solo. This was not asked according to Tracy. Um, th this was, you know, years and years and years and years, decades of conversations with colleagues and mentors and friends and students about like, what do we want? What do we want to be? How can we do that? Um, and sort of playing devil's advocate with each other to try to figure out where our sticking point's going to be. All right, let me take this other position and let's see if we can argue it this way. Um, so th there's no way any of the things if any, that I was able to accomplish in my time in that space. None of that could have occurred if I didn't have amazing people around me who were willing to sort of fight that fight with me. I think there's so many things to appreciate about, appreciate about you and, and your leadership, Tracy. And I think just, again, this like consistent theme of caring about other people and knowing that like other people, there's not a lot of I language that you use. It's a lot of we. And I think obviously your presidential address was, was quite a memorable one and, and a moving one. And I think the consensus of that as well was like, this is a we situation, not a me. Just that was my goal. Yep. That's good. So to take a bit of a pause on the ASP aspect in the field, this is our favorite part of, well, there's lots of favorite parts, but this is up there. Um, we'd like to hear a story, um, just something that, brings a smile to your face, a story that maybe you, you like to tell or maybe you don't get to tell very often. Um, anything goes. Um, and if you can mention other ASP members if they're involved, that would be great as well. Um, so just some kind of story that, that you would like to share with all of us. Oh, good Lord. That, that <laughs> could be the entire, the entire discussion right here. Again, keep in mind, I've been coming to ASP since the mid 80s or late 80s. So there's, there's a lot of stories and they involve lots and lots and lots of different people. They <laughs> run the gamut from, I don't know, like watching, good Lord, Bert Geiges and Penny McCullough dancing somewhat inappropriately in New Orleans <laughs> uh, at a banquet to, um, Oh man, getting stuck in an elevator in San Diego with probably 30 other ASP members because, you know, we were all trying to get to the same place at the same time. So stupid us literally put probably more than 20 people in an elevator trying to go someplace. And of course that didn't work. Um, so that was a, a joyous occasion for people like me, Bob Harmison, Jack Watson, uh, <laughs> Who else was in there? Um, Brett Walker, uh, Bart Lerner, Kristen Diefenbach, probably Sarah Castillo, uh, Kimberly Amiro, all of us like sweating in that box for probably three hours <laughs> while, while they tried to get the fire or whoever people to come and open the door for us. And all the while, I'll have you know, um, Ken Rizza was sitting right outside the elevator door on a bench, just having a conversation with all 20 plus of us that were stuck inside the elevator. That was I thought you were going to say like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Oh, no, no, it was hours. hours. <laughs> it was hours to the point that when they finally got the door open and we were, you know, basically extruded out of the elevator, 
um, all of us fully clothed. I mean, it was a conference. We were all wearing conference gear. We all had our name badges with our ribbons and everything on it. Literally, I think there were probably 10 of us, at least half of the elevator went running, mad dash directly from the elevator to the pool and all jumped in the pool <laughs> with all of our clothes on. Um, oh yeah, it, that was epic. Um, some of the more recent super fun things have to do with, again, it's, it's the people. It's um, being able to get together with like some of my female sports psychology colleagues um, that I don't get to see in person very often, but we all go to ask. So we all make a point to go to dinner one night and just sit and laugh. Um, in Hawaii, there was a group of probably five or six of us that went and we sat at that, at that table for probably four hours. And uh, seriously, my obliques still hurt from laughing at that dinner in Hawaii, what, 10 years ago, more than a decade ago. Um, every memory, every good memory that I have from ASP is a, around the people that you get to hang out with, that you get to play with, that you get to laugh with. Um, yeah. The other like super fun thing for me at ASP now, as I'm old, is being able to go to an ASP conference and have like the Fullerton night um, and the Carolina night and be able to like, literally I look at the table when everybody from Fullerton can get together at an ASP conference. And it started off, there were maybe, you know, 10 people. We're, we're at the point now where we're taking over restaurants. You know, we, we've got probably, I think that last one that we went to, we had probably 45 people um, that came to that restaurant and to just be able to sit there and look at all the people. Just amazing. You're going to get me going and then we're going to get Megan going and then Katie's not going to understand what's going on. She's oh yeah. And, there, and there's video and documented evidence of all of this stuff. So yeah. Yeah. The, the, the less appropriate for public consumption pieces are definitely available. Um, just maybe not on this podcast. The after dark, Megan. We need yes. to make the after dark happen. Sean McCann did offer to host Aspen Answered After Dark. Oh, awesome. once it's again, so your yeah, your heart for people is just so inspiring. Tracy, you've talked a little bit about this kind of from you finding the field to maybe the the you know mid two thousand tens. In what ways do you think the field has continued evolving? And, and what are your thoughts, good and bad, about that evolution? Maybe where, where has it been really helpful and good? And maybe what's, what are some parts of that evolution that maybe haven't been so great? Well, I think uh, the, just the, the evolution of what the actual thing is that we do um, is one of the best things. I mean, just, just looking at the impact that the people who do this thing, whatever you wanna call it, whatever title you use, this, this thing that we do that helps people live their lives better or do their jobs better or embrace and excel at the thing that makes them the happiest. To be able to, to be in that space and help people grow in that, to the place where it's becoming more recognized, it's more acceptable, it's understood in a lot better ways. Um, to me, that's that's huge. Um, so I I love that just in the time that I've been around to see the development of this. Um, I think we're still fighting, sadly, some of the same battles. Um, 
but the, the interesting thing to me is that we seem to be fighting some battles that are much more internal battles that the public facing group doesn't really care about. Um, so it's it's always interesting to me that we have these, you know, these epic knockdown, drag down, drag out meetings sometimes at a business meeting or at an ask conference or a, you know, the presidential luncheon around who we are and what we do and what we call ourselves. And then we get our ethics group involved and all of this stuff happens. And honestly, all the people that we work with care about is can you help me get better? Um, and depending on who I am and what I need, I'm going to find somebody who can help me with that. So I, I think some of the things that the, in, in general, I think what we do is amazing and I'm incredibly lucky and massively blessed to be able to do this, um, at the levels that I've been able to do this. But I also think we take ourselves too damn seriously sometimes, <laughs> And we would do ourselves a world of good if we could put ourselves in the position of the people that we work with and for um, and understand what they need from their perspective. And again, continue to clean up ourselves so that we can be even better and more effective and more efficient at working with those people. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's my politically correct way of saying the things that I want to say. To expand on that a bit then, where do you think the field and ask are going? So if we can look out five, 10, 15 years, do you think we're still gonna be having these same conversations? Do you think it's gonna look different? What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I'm gonna channel my inner Ken Revisa for a moment. Um, every faculty meeting that I ever went to with Ken Revisa, at some point in the meeting, he would stand up, throw up his arms and say, we can't be all things to all people. Um, I, I think that if we continue to try to be everything for everybody in the performance, mental health, um, exercise space, we just dilute our effectiveness. Um, we're not a, we're not a big organization in the grand scheme of professional organizations. So the further, the, the further we sort of dilute ourselves and our mission and our vision, I think the, the least impactful we become. Um, and, and this is a hard truth is that I, I think everybody who comes to ASP that is a member of ASP that participates in all of the offerings that ASP has to offer, um, there's value to every single one of those people. Mm -hmm. But if the organization tries to be the thing that every single one of those people needs, then we're a mediocre mess of inconsistencies. Um, so I think, and this is where, you know, again, what, what I think makes us strong is when we can consolidate and clearly identify who we are, what we value, what we do. Um, I, I recognize that sometimes that, that very tight definition may on the surface look like it's excluding people. But it, to me, it's not. If, if you are on the outside of that, but what that tight definition provides is something that can help you peripherally do your job better, then it's not exclusionary. Like I still continue to go to strength and conditioning coaches, coaches association meetings. I go to NSCA meetings. I go to NATA meetings. Because even though I'm not a strength coach anymore, even though I'm not an athletic trainer, there's things that they talk about there that make my role as a mental performance coordinator better, more informed, 
uh, more rigorous. I'm not expecting NATA or NSCA to be sports psychology organizations. I go to them because I want to learn from them about things that make me better. In the same way, if I want to learn things around mental health, I know I can, you know, right now I can come to Aspen, I can get some of it, but if I really want to dig deep on a subtext, on a, on a specific section of mental health, particularly as it relates to what my current job is, I'm probably going to go to APA or I'm going to go to a, you know, a behavioral health conference. I'm going to find those organizations because I want to do a deeper dive into what their thing is. Um, so I, I, I'm hopeful um, for the organization and the leadership that we currently have and the leadership that we have coming and moving forward, that there's a recognition that, you know, again, Ken Revisa, we shouldn't be all things to all people because that makes us really pitifully poor at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, master of all, what is it? What's the, Chelsea, you can help me with these things. Jack of, Jack of all trades, master Jack of, of all trades, master of none, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't want, I don't want us to be that. I want us to be the end all be all most knowledgeable go-to organization for performance psychology, um, for the, you know, for what we do in this country. Um, and that may not necessarily include somebody's mental health. And that's just my perspective on it. I'm not saying that's the, the direction the organization should go. I just think we need to figure out who we are and what we want to be. Um, in order for us to more effectively streamline how we can put ourselves out there. And if that means that we've got subsets, I mean, if you look at APA, APA doesn't provide everything for every member of APA. APA provides some things, and then there's targeted subsections. And there's like conferences within conferences. Um, Maybe ASP could sort of look at something like that, that there's, you know, big ASP, and then there's little ASP. Um, that within the organization, we get into subsets, kind of like we did with SIGs, um, where that's what the focus is. It's really a deep dive into this particular thing. Um, Because I think if if we continue to try to onboard and be inclusive of everything, we end up really diluting what we're capable of doing for anyone. Mm -hmm. Tracy, what really stands out to me about what you're talking about, too, is this idea of having a clear definition of who we are. I can then also be really intentional about where I go to learn those other things. And I'm perhaps more open to that cross collaboration with those organizations like you talked about versus, you know, that inward focus you focused on so long ago of no, you know, we just live here. This is the only place. And we kind of stay in that bubble versus, okay, well, here's what I do. And now let me go pull from these other places to add to that. I think it really creates a beautiful opportunity. I think a lot of that too, a lot of this is informed by where I currently am right now and what I'm currently doing. I can't do my job if I don't have a thorough working understanding of sports medicine, if I don't have a thorough working understanding of strength conditioning, if I don't, if I can't understand what our dietitians and nutritionists are doing with our players and why, if our sleep specialists are speaking another language than what I understand, I can't do my job well if I don't understand some of their space. Now, I'm never going to be an expert in their spaces. That's why we have them. But if I want to be good at my job, I have to be able to holistically collaborate with all of those people to be able to give the best service to the guys that I work with every day. There's no way for me to do it otherwise. 
And to, to think that all I need to know is mental performance and sports psychology literature or experience or knowledge, skills, and abilities is myopic, quite honestly. I need to understand some of these other things, and I need to see where those cross-pollinators are, because that's the only way for me to holistically approach and work with the people who I work with. And I recognize that every single one of them is going to be different, whether it's a, you know, a high school pitcher who just had UCL surgery and is going through Tommy John rehab, or it's a, you know, 65 year old um, hitting coach who's having some issues uh, trying to communicate with our Latin players um, and is seeking advice on how to be a better communicator. You know, all of those things are my wheelhouse. I need to be able to understand those things. And I need to know coaching. I need to know coaching literature. I need to understand how coaches operate, what are different ways to approach people from different backgrounds. I, need, I mean, there's just so many things that we need to have a working understanding of to be really excellent at our jobs. I don't just want to be good. I want to be excellent. Um, and to do that, I need to understand and I need to pull from other, other fields to be able to do that. Preach. <laughs> And with that, I feel like there's been so much or so many little pieces of advice throughout, um, but maybe what other pieces of advice would you share for students and new professionals entering into the field? Um, one I've already mentioned, which is come to these conferences with a goal of meeting new people. Um, put yourself out there, learn some new people, get, make some friends, talk about stuff. Don't just find people who agree with you really cultivate and find the people that argue with you because that's where you're going to have the most growth. Um, yeah. I, I love those conversations with people that I have really strong disagreements with because it forces me to think about things and clarify why I believe what I believe. Um, so yeah, I think the networking thing is huge. I think another piece of advice that I have for not just for students per se, but for um, people maybe who are, transitioning into this space from previous other spaces, um, whether that's like a clinical psych person who's trying to grow their practice um, by serving athletes in a different way, um, or a strength conditioning coach who's trying to, you know, onboard some of their mental performance and sports psychology skills. I think for anybody in our industry, it's about recognizing that this is really hard. To do this well, is really difficult um, and you gotta love it. This is not, I used to say this about teaching too. Nobody, nobody goes into teaching because they wanna get paid the big bucks. Nobody goes into sports psych um, because they wanna be like on the Wheaties box themselves. This is really hard work and you have to derive your joy from the the work itself, not from the outcomes, not from the accomplishments, not from the, you know, the gold medals of your clients, not from them talking about you in the media. Your success is derivative from the 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 impact that you can have in helping them in their journey. Um, and that's really hard. So so being able to sort of put aside some of that ego um, and that desire for recognition, mm -hmm. that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do. And, and you get into, um, a lot of people I think get into this field thinking that 
you know, they look at the people who do this well and they look at how they do it and what techniques they use and what philosophies they have and what topes they ascribe to and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And they think, oh, okay, I can do that. You can't <laughs> because what that person figured out for them is what works for them. So recognizing that it's hard, it's going to take a lot of time for you to figure out who you are and how you work best. And you are going to fail a shitload. You are going to fail a lot. Um, and that actually is what makes this good. The, and it's a weird thing to say, but the failure is the thing that forces you to grow. Um, so if you are scared of failure, if you're scared, if you're nervous, if you're anxious about putting yourself out there, um, this is not the job for you. If you have difficulty standing in front of people and winging a conversation without preparation, this is not the career for you. Um, and I'm talking about the applied side of sports psychology service provision. Um, you know, and then the reality is like, we have people that do all kinds of different jobs that are all part of this organization. There's some great teachers who would be awful applied sports psychology consultants. There are some phenomenal mental performance coaches who would be absolute shit as teachers. Um, there's both of those categories who can't do research to save a lick. There's some amazing researchers that I'm not listening to if I'm standing on the side of a field. But I think the thing that makes us beautiful is that if you can understand what everybody brings to that equation and learn from each of those people to define who you are and what makes you good, what resonates, <coughs> excuse me, what resonates in your soul for you as a service provider, that's what, that's what it takes to do this job. So long story short, like long answer to a pretty simple question, this is friggin' hard. Um, and it has to be hard for it to be good. And if you're looking for something that's fun and easy, this ain't it. I don't know if that answers your question, but. It absolutely does, thank you. Okay. Dear friend of mine always says, the great path is really the easy path. And I so appreciate you kind of echoing that. All right, deep breath, big question. Okay, uh-oh. What do you hope your impact on the field will be? <sighs> there's the snarky, funny answer, and then there's the real answers. Um, <laughs> I think some of it, um, I, I, we've already talked about here so far. I think some of it is cleaning house and like really, I would love for my impact to have been about helping us really identify who we are, what we do and why we do it. Um, and just sort of crystallizing some of that uh, would be amazing. Um, the, that's sort of like institutionally. The biggest impact that I hope I have has I think little to do with me. It has to do with you. It has to do with the people that I've been lucky enough to be able to mentor because you guys are the ones who are doing it. I'm retired. You know, I'm sitting in my pool at four o'clock in the afternoon, <laughs> you know, thinking about like what I'm going to make for dinner. You guys are the ones that are doing it. So to me, the, the best impact that I can have 
is by you guys paying it forward. It's by all of the people who I've been lucky enough to be able to teach, to be able to mentor, to be able to argue with, um, to be able to sort of encourage and nudge in leadership directions for you guys to use your voices with the things that take the current space and move it forward. That's the impact. I'm not crying, you're crying. I'm not, it's dusty and allergies over here. Uh. I think, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Chelsea. No, hey, go, you go, um, no, you go. (laughs) I think it's just, like, there's such a ripple effect in our field because even, like, I went to school with Chelsea, who then was got to, like, learn from you. So, like, I hear, like, Tracy things from Chelsea and then now, like, teaching Katie. And I think, like, the field just, like, continues to, like, evolve in that way. And even, I think you mentioned it before, just, like, as, like, women in our field, I remember like going, I was at an internship in baseball and someone who worked there said like, well, you can't have this job. It's your girl. And I just remember thinking like, well, that's kind of messed up. And then now to have somebody such as yourself, like in this high role, like you just open these doors that at some point were closed and now they're open. And so I think, you know, just we're all so incredibly grateful that you that you were willing to share some of this with us and then just see in for what you've done for the field. It's just, it's, it's incredible. So um, because you've been so grateful with your time and your energy and your effort in our field, is there anything that we haven't asked you about um, that you'd either like to share, you think is important to share that we haven't asked you about? Are, are we missing anything? It's kind of like opening, opening up the floor to you. Yeah, Chelsea added this question into the mix, I can tell, because this is a question that I always ask when I talk to other people, when the roles are reversed. So what did I forget to ask you about? And I never realized how annoying it is as a question. Uh, <laughs> it's a good one. Comes um, around, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's definitely what goes around comes around. Um, it, I think I think the you know, it's, it's the obvious thing that we actually didn't address right up until right there is the gender thing. Um, when I started, there were very few women who did what I wanted to do at the highest level. Um, honestly, there were two or three. Um, Glory Balagay, um, uh, Gloria, pretty much. <laughs> there, there were not very, there were a lot of female uh, faculty members. Um, there were a lot of researchers who were female when I was coming up through this, but there were very few applied practitioners who were doing really good high-level work. There, there were people like Judy Van Ralt who were, you know, obviously doing applied work, but it was always on the side with their academic careers. Um, the 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 explosion in not just applied opportunity but applied opportunity for women, for people of color, um, for different previously marginalized groups who were consistently told that you can't do that. It it doesn't fit for whatever reason, whether it's because of your race, whether it's because of your gender, whether it's because of your belief systems, whatever, for whatever reason, you can't do that. Um, There's been a lot of that. And, And to me, I always looked at that and said, I'll show you. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
when Ken Revisa, my my first internship at Fullerton, asked me what I wanted to do, and I told him I wanted to work with baseball, he laughed at me. He was like, "You won't be taken seriously." I'm like, "Well, shit, I'm going to do it anyway." Um, and I argued with him, and we went back and forth for a couple of weeks. And he finally said, "You're not going to give this up, are you?" And I said, "No, I'm not. I know I I know baseball. I played softball. I want to be able to work with baseball." Um, and I, honestly, it, it was selfish at the time. It, it's what he did. And I wanted the best advising that I could get. And it was what he knew and what he was really solidly good at and invested in at that time. So I'm like, I want baseball. So he hooked me up with a baseball team uh, to be able to work with them as an internship. He, he never believed that I was going to be successful there. And I fought for it and I was successful. And I worked with them for the entire duration of my master's degree. Um, when I got to Utah, um, Keith told me that the dissertation that I wanted to do, couldn't do it. I wouldn't be allowed to do it because it was a research thing. They didn't do qualitative research at the time. There was one student who had come through our program, Greg Shelley, who had come through our program and done a qualitative study for his dissertation. And it was like unheard of. People were like, no, you can't do that. That's not, it's not what we do here. I'm like, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to make this thing so damn rigorous that you're never going to have this discussion again. Um, you know, to, to now, you know, here I am 50, you know, whatever years old and I retire from, you know, a job and people are saying, yeah, congratulations. You get to be retired. And then I make a choice to go and work a job. That's even harder mm-hmm. after I'm retired. And people are telling me, you should, you can't do that. There's no, that's a young person job. You can't do that job. Well, screw you. Yeah, I can. And I'm going to show you that I can. Um, so I think that's that's been a through line, whether it was gender based, whether it was research based, whether it was applied versus, you know, academic based, um, whether it was retirement or not based. I've, I've constantly had people tell me I can't do the things that I want to do. And I think all that does is serve to fire me up and works as motivation to say, screw you. I'm going to show you I can do whatever the hell I want to do. Um, so, yeah. Screw it. Do what you want to do. The new tagline. Yeah. I, you know, the representation, right? It's the representation piece and it's, it's seeing people. And I'm, I'm grateful, you know, you've brought it up multiple times. Other interviews have brought it up. I can think of a handful of not just within our field, but within ASP as an organization too. How do we do better with this representation piece? How do we do better with multiple identities, right? Thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, justice, and so many different ways to really create that sense of belonging and that representation for people so that students coming up see themselves somewhere. And, um, you know, I just, selfishly, I just want to say, Tracy, that it was, you know, Megan had the honor of learning from Dr. Robin Veely, and I had the honor of learning from you. And as as humbling as it was to get to be in a program with, with Ken Revisa and to learn from him, it absolutely was. There was a hundred percent a connection to you because of exactly that, that you held a space for us to be young women, to find a spot in this field and for you to sometimes gently and sometimes not gently, depending on what we needed saying, get your ass out there and go do the work. Um, yeah. And so it's, um, it's very powerful and I'm glad other people are getting to hear that that's a value of yours too. Cause it's something I've always appreciated and greatly respected about you. Thanks. Well, as Megan said, you've been so incredibly generous with your time.
I'm thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story for all of the energy you have put into the field that you continue putting into the field um, for putting up with all of us who are still bugging you 20 years later with questions and comments. And um, yeah, and thank you for participating in this. It's great that we're going to be able to um, have all of these voices and these histories together. So thank you for being willing to contribute to that. Absolutely. It's, it's an honor to be able to be a part of this. And I am massively grateful that you're doing this because it's been, it's been a need that has not been addressed for a very long time. And, you know, as I recognize a lot of my mentors are no longer with us, um, their voices, I don't want their voices to be lost. So this is great. Yeah, that's, that's the goal. Uh, so on behalf of all of us here at Asked and Answered, uh, we asked Dr. Tracy Sallers answered, and we'll see you next time.